I was trying to think of a pun involving anchors, but I have a way to go. This is the Veteran Wargamer. episode episode 60 i am joined by longtime friend of the show i i would say is that is that fair to say john i think that's fair to say yeah john yingling john was one of the first people to reach out to me on twitter and say hey i, I like your show and kind of pointed me in a couple different directions pointed me towards micro or pico armor pointed me towards pico armor which i'm which i appreciate that very much um and most recently, John and I met while I was out at Gettysburg for the staff ride for my officer candidates, and he helped run the Ultra of Freedom game that the mm-hmm. York Area War Gamers uh, also put known together. as Little Wars TV. Also known as Little Wars TV. Yeah, uh, link will be in the show notes. So, John, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank thanks you, Jay. for thanks for coming on. No, thank you for having me. Um, now, we are definitely we are we are talking naval wargaming in this episode. Uh, we're going to concentrate primarily on basic on Age of Steam forward. Um, mm-hmm. You know, naval wargaming is such a huge topic because you can go, you know, back to the classical era with your triremes and quincruemes and and all the rest, all the way up past modern into science fiction but we're gonna we're gonna narrow our focus somewhat uh, i do want to talk about classical and age of sale and sci-fi naval war game at some time in the future but i think it's safe to say that john being a former navy man yourself uh naval war gaming is is definitely in your wheelhouse it's definitely in my wheelhouse <laughs> so i i Kind of let the cat out of the bag, so but we'll go ahead and keep going. And I'm going to ask you the same question I ask every guest the first time they're on: What makes you a veteran wargamer? Oh, I've got, I have games, that, and this is after I've culled back my collection. I have games that are not only old enough to vote; they're old enough to run for president. <laughs> um, and I kid you not. Um, so what makes me a veteran wargamer? Well, I won't say how old I am, but I can I will say that like many of my generation I started out with Airfix Army men. Mm-hmm. I had oh so many. Um they're somewhere in my parents' house, I'm sure, or at least in the backyard. Um but you know, started with those, you know, there were some rules that you kind of found um I live in the western suburbs of Philadelphia, and growing up, we have well, we have a shopping center called King of Prussia, which most people know is this huge shopping center. But growing up, there was a hobby shop in my little town. There was one in the town next to us. There was two at the mall, and one outside the mall. So you had access to miniatures and games and and so forth and so on. Um, Played those, the SPI board games uh, and the Avalon Hill games, uh, which I'm, sh- I'm sure you you remember. You've played mm-hmm. a few of those. 
and then was doing Dungeons and Dragons into junior high uh, and into high school and, and continued the gaming. And the gaming was whatever was the latest and the greatest thing that we could come by. D&D &D and was normally like the fallback. Um, fast forward to high school, grew up in a steel town, decided I didn't want to work in the steel mill, um, and joined uh, the United States Navy. Um, went through electronics training and had received some additional training, and the, the personnelman that was like cutting orders it's like, well, you know, you have this, you know, well, you know, we've, we're giving you three sets of orders, and they were all to the same type of ship I did not want to go to. And they says, well, where do you want to go? And I says, anything on submarines, because that's what I wanted. Mm -hmm. And he looked at me like I had two heads. So that started my career on fast attack submarines during the Cold War. And that as an enlisted man, gave me a new appreciation of command decisions that are part of running a tactical unit with so few men and so few officers. Mm -hmm. um, now, my gaming did not stop. Anytime I went to a new duty station, whether it was Great Lakes or Norfolk or Groton, I found where's the, the closest, you know, game shop and always acquired more stuff, more toys. Um, and every time I would switch duty stations, a couple boxes of my new toys would be whisked home to my uh, childhood bedroom. And they would be there for me the next time I stopped in. And then I would show up at my next duty station and acquire more. <laughs> um, and wargaming now is a little bit more accepted in the military my, my wife's grandson is in the army I know many others that are in the military and they grew up with the games workshop when I was in sailors did really only one major thing when you were in port and that was to drink heavily and I will say I, I did my fair share, um, but I also would, would pull, you know, a box of miniatures along with me, and my box was a small tackle box with uh, assorted uh, 1-2400 ships that I was working on for the next game that I would play the next time I would have uh, some space um, and some time. And we had a a change of command and our senior uh, enlisted and I ended up getting a new chief and the old chief, the old E7 was, he was a good guy, but he left us alone in the torpedo room. What you did there, that was fine. He didn't care. He stayed in the chief's quarters and ran it, ran operations from there. Well, the new chief shows up and he opens up one of the storage locker and pulls out, my uh, tackle box with paints and files and knives, you know, exacto knives, and probably about 40 or 50 World War One naval miniatures that I was working on. Mm -hmm. and he opens it, and he does a quick scan across the room, and he looks at me and goes, what the hell is this? <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, it's like, how do you explain to a man... <laughs> 
and it's like, uh, well, they're my toys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and it, it was, it was, you know, it was funny, you know, it, it then became the icebreaker because he actually, he had seen so much in his career and because he knew I was interested in history and was eventually he knew I would, you know, we, we had talked and I had said I was going to go on, you know, to do my college and, and get at least a degree in history. We were able to have these conversations. Um, and, you know, he just would shake his head and kind of go, it takes all kinds, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, got out of the military. um Moved back to uh, southeastern Pennsylvania, continued gaming. Um, when I moved here, I did a short spell uh, helping uh, run a game store. Uh, thought about doing it myself and having a game store. And it reminds me, I think it was the old uh, uh, Marx Brothers line, how do you make us... Uh, small fortune in horse racing, you start with a large fortune. And that's right. exactly in, in gaming, running a game store. You better have a lot of money to get started. Right. Um, so I passed on that. But I did find that I was really good at working in development for games. And I've helped playtest and develop games for companies such as Avalon Hill and Multiman for their GCACW system. I did some work for uh, Clash of Arms with their aviation uh, series, and my name's been in a few of the specials uh, for the Two Fat Lardies. Okay. So I've most of most of my adult life, I've been writing or doing something that is game related. Um, it's a it's a fun hobby. Um, and uh, it's been very rewarding. Yeah, it sounds great. I mean, it sounds like you are definitely of a certain age where, you know, like many, many other folks around your same age group, you start with Airfix figures and mm -hmm. and D&D &D and the rest. Um, I think I think what we'll definitely need to do, though, is at some point... Uh, figure out a way to get together because I, I certainly appreciated you you coming out and helping run mm -hmm. Ultra Freedom for the, the officer candidates and maybe someday we'll be able to go back to uh, gaming conventions again and <laughs> once well, once the uh, the COVID crisis is over and we uh, could, have to see about coming out east for sure well we could find some place uh, halfway maybe not halfway but uh um, I did do for the gamers, and it never saw light of day because then at, when we were, I was working on it, they were going through a reorganization. But I had done a lot of work on a game for Fort Donaldson. Mm, mm -hmm. And, you know, and it, this is pre-internet, um, so most of my research was, you know, books and old, old maps – uh, but you know, we could we could find a place. I'm sure we could meet. I mean, a game convention is is great. Mm -hmm. um, for Donaldson, maybe cheaper. <laughs> yeah. Hey, well, Donaldson's. I've I've been to Donaldson. We actually I know. took our we took our uh, staff ride to Donaldson last year, and 
that's a great battle and I, I could go on and on about it but we're not here to talk about uh fort donaldson although it does have a naval aspect but it, we are it does. we are we are moving forward probably okay. like 30 years from the american civil war um in our in our time frame that we're going to discuss today um but i guess we need to really talk about or to start we need to talk about where naval wargaming started and i see you've got some notes here uh well a couple of points you wanted to hit on so i'll let you take the reins on that well anyone who has ever played any world war any military naval military game uh will know to pull out their Jane's fighting ships. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter whether we're doing 82 in the Falklands or we're doing, you know, Cold War, World War Two. But, I mean, you really go back to uh, Fred Jane. You know, he had a set of naval rules back in 1906. And that's going probably farther back than, than most would think. But between the turn of the last century into the 50s and 60s, when you've got you know the, the Fletcher Pratt rules, Phil Dunn did a number of books. Uh, Jane's actually did a, a couple different sets of rules. Um, Naval wargaming has been an established part of the military. Mm-hmm. You can, to this day, whether you want to go to the Western Approaches Museum in England, or you want to go to the War College, uh, the United States Naval uh, War College, pushing blocks of wood representing ships or flotillas has been part of the development of the senior officer uh, class in this country and throughout the world. Um, it became more acceptable as a pastime for the generation post-World War II, for those uh, in, in the 60s, early 70s, where you had books. And I'm looking at my book bookcase, and there's at least one there not only on naval wargaming from the 60s, but also telling you how to take balsa wood to build your ships. Hmm. So, I mean, they've been around, and a lot of this also goes back to the fact that the generation that's playing in the 60s are middle-aged, had served in World War II, and many of them either served on the ships or their uncles served on the ships or their fathers or older brothers. Mm-hmm. So there was that physical connection um, you know, to, to the wargaming, uh, uh, to, to naval wargaming. Uh, and recently, uh, going back to the Western's Approaches Museum, Western Approaches going into England, there, they've, there's a new book out really on the subject of naval wargaming in World War II where an officer and a group of, I believe they were Wrens, the, uh, the female auxiliary uh, in the Royal Navy, mm-hmm. um, were developing strategies to beat the U-boats that were fighting the convoys. And 
you know, this man was just using game theory and talking to both destroyer captains and British submarine captains and kind of going, well, how would you do this? Mm. And it was a revelation. You know, they were, they were kind of going, you know, why are you talking to a lieutenant commander when you have an admiral in the next room? And it's like, well, it's because the lieutenant commander actually commands a submarine and, and is doing this now versus, you know, 20 years ago. Right. So, I mean, naval wargaming is around, has been around, um, maybe not as long as our brethren um, in uh, land combat, but it's it's been around. And the mm-hmm. other thing about it is, and looking at it from a, just a general philosophy of gaming, and something that we're seeing today, is naval wargaming is your original skirmish gamers. You can play an enjoyable naval battle uh, in an evening with two to three ships on a size. Mm -hmm. If we were doing this in 28 millimeter figures, we would call this, you know, a skirmish. Um, And that's, that's kind of the interesting part about it is with naval war gaming, when you're playing and let's say you, you want to buy eight ships. Well, you know, you can pick up the graphs pay and the four cruisers and you're, you're set. Mm-hmm. Or you can pick up the Prince Eugen, the Bismarck, um, one of the uh, KG5 um, and the Hood, and you can fight one battle. And if you want to come back to it, and uh, look at it, uh, you know, in a couple weeks, well, then you can go and, you know, add the Rodney or add the Repulse or, you know, it's, it's one of those things that you can add to it. And when you start looking at some of the ships, especially in World War II, you look at the war spike and just the number of engagements it was in. Um, look at the Prince of Wales. It's, you know, was in two you know, fascinating, you know, engagements. Uh, unfortunately, it, it came to a, its end very abruptly. Um, but, you know, you'd have, you know, you could have a King George V class battleship. It can fill in for this or that, you know. My brother's been a huge fan of naval war gaming, especially World War II with mm-hmm. the uh, GHQ 124 uh, And we'll, then we can talk in detail about the sure. different rule sets and, in miniature lines that are out there, but it's definitely one of those things where with, you know, just a little bit of time, you know, you can, you know, anybody can paint a one one twenty four hundred scale ship model for the most part, you know, wild stuff like the, like the Italians, you know, barber pole prows and, and that sort of thing, notwithstanding, but, you know, just about anybody can, Put some we have, gray on the model and put some we have decals for that now. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it is certainly something that if if for if for nothing else, if you just want to mirror or not mirror, but if you want to game a military action and not necessarily worry about terrain or uh, painting 
like you said, hundreds and hundreds of miniatures or even dozens of miniatures. Yeah, like you said, you're you're talking a dozen ships, six to a side. That you know, depending on the action and the level of action that you're simulating, or the level of action that you're gaming, that could be a pretty significant battle. You know, no uh-huh. one's no one's gonna go right out and jump right into the the Battle of the Surigao Strait, for example. But you know, you maybe you could do part of it. You know, or if you wanted to. Uh, do any number of smaller actions in the Mediterranean, for example. So I think we should do what we've done in those other episodes and just kind of look chronologically, go through a little bit of the history, uh, talk about some of the rules that are out there, some of the model lines that are out there, and uh, just kind of give folks an introduction to to what's out there. So your your interest lies starting with pre-dreadnought going through the modern era. So why don't we go ahead and talk about what you mean by pre-dreadnought? What what era and what belligerence are we talking here? Yeah, okay. So looking, you know, when we were looking at the timeline, so when you look at pre-dreadnoughts, you're looking, you know, for the period where if you know anything about this time period, you may have heard the expression, remember the main. Mm. When an American battleship was sent to Havana, to take care of our interests and blew up in, shall we say, interesting circumstances. <laughs> um, it, as from 1898 to 1976, we've had arguments over, was it a mine? Was it coal dust? Was it this? Was it... All I can say is the battleship blew up and forced America to make a decision and its decision was to go to war we declared war on Spain and by the time this war was over we had become a world power so what does this have to do with pre-dreadnoughts so the American Civil War ends in 1865 we are the premier military naval power. We have fleets of dreadnoughts. They don't do well out at sea, but we have, you know, we have wooden cruisers and we could definitely give uh, England uh, definitely a run for its money on the world stage. But Americans are predominantly isolationists and we looked at this fleet and went, well, what can it, what good can it do us now? And within years we were 14th, 15th, 16th place as a naval power. Um, And we stayed that way until a country to the south of us, Brazil, built a cruiser. It was an impressive cruiser. Uh, Not today, but back then it definitely was. Um, And the American Navy looked at this cruiser, looked at their dilapidated fleet, and went... This one cruiser could sink the entire U.S. Navy in an afternoon and wouldn't even, you know, you know, mess up its hair. <laughs> um, so around 1889, uh, we started to think about, do we want fleets of cruisers? Do we want fleets of battleships? We couldn't decide, so we kind of did a little bit of both. In 1898, when 
the main blows up and we go to war, the American military had to go to war with the military that it had. And that was made up of four battleships that were okay. Um, they weren't great, um, but they were, you know, the best that we had at the time. Um, three of the battleships were so bad that um, they actually had to do counter-flooding to uh, allow them to fire both of their uh, turreted uh, guns in a broadside mm. because the turrets weren't um, leveled, and when they put them out 90 degrees and they would fire the guns, um, the ships would rock too much, so they would have to do uh, counter-flooding to, uh, to take care of that. Um, so we went to war with these pre-dreadnoughts, and I'm sorry, I should have said that, that what a pre-dreadnought is, is it's any major steel ship that was built roughly from 1870s up until 1905, 1906, England launches the dreadnought, and those are the battleships we think of today as battleships. Mm. Okay. The reason the, reason the pre-dreadnought era is my favorite is these people were so wacky. We believed and built not only a ship, but artillery batteries of guns that fired dynamite with compressed air. Yes, okay. it's as dangerous as it sounds. <laughs> um, we built ships that had rams and no guns because we thought that was a good idea. Now, we weren't alone. There was a lot of people doing wacky things because there really wasn't any major wars to test these things out. But if you're a naval gamer, you can have the Vesuvius with its dynamite guns. You can have the Massachusetts with its guns that aren't all that great, but it looks it looks cool. Um, you had yachts that were pressed into service and were used on the blockade. But overall, you have, you have our conflict with Spain. Japan fought a war uh, with China, the first Sino-Japanese war. Uh, that was a war between battleships and cruisers. And um, the cruisers won. Um, the Japanese had very effective cruisers with smaller guns that fired faster, and the Chinese had larger battleships with guns that, if they would hit you, uh, you were going to sink, um, but they had to hit you. Uh, and this is also at a time where if you could hit a target at 2,000 yards, you were doing good. Um American accuracy in the Spanish-American War with its naval guns was somewhere between 2 and 4%. Mm -hmm. uh, the only thing that saved us was the Spanish were between 1 and 2%. Um, so, and this, this holds true until you get to 1904-1905, the Russo-Japanese War, kind of the end of the pre-dreadnought era where you have a large fleet action uh, that ends the war at Tushima, where the Japanese uh, 
sink a barely maintained Russian fleet that came all the way from the Baltic. Um, so 1898 made the U.S. a superpower. 1905 made Japan a superpower. And oh, by the way, we have this piece of territory called the Philippines right in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to come back to this when we talk about World War II. <laughs> um, so that's the pre-Dreadnought era. And the okay. thing is, in the Philadelphia area, and the, when you come to Philadelphia next, I will take you on a behind-the-scenes hard hat tour of the USS Olympia, mm. the only pre-Dreadnought uh, warship left in our fleet. Um, that's It's here in Philadelphia. And normally... On the weekend closest to the 1st of May, the Battle of the Mineral Bay, uh, where the Olympia was the flagship, we actually are my other club um, here in uh, Springfield, uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, we host games, including we will do at least one, if not more, naval engagements uh, for the Battle of Manila Bay. Um, and it's great for people that are walking up and wanting to learn because uh, you can play the Americans. And if you play it historically, it's it's not a lot of fun playing the Spanish. Um, sure. <laughs> so, so, I mean, in a nutshell, that's why, um, you know, I consider the pre-Dreadnought era my favorite. And with the, the lockdown right now, even though my job is still essential, I've been able to eke out time and uh, I think think my most recent count was I have like 40 ships, 46 warships from the American and Spanish navies. And this is a project that goes back for me to 1983 when I bought a lot of these and they've just kind of never got finished. And it's like, I'm finishing them this year. Um, (laughs) And uh, yeah, yeah, these are, you know, the presidential contenders. So, so ready to move on to dreadnoughts? Yeah. Um, what? Uh, where would? Where does one get uh, pre-dreadnought models? Uh, Panzer Chiefs uh, does one twenty four hundred in resin. They're inexpensive and they look good. They don't look great, but they look good. Mm-hmm. Um, War Games uh, WTJ War War Games. Times Journal, WTJ.com, uh, uh, does 3D printed versions that are beautiful. Mm, okay. um, I get some from Shapeways, um, and uh, you know that that pretty much covers it. I mean, Panzer Chiefs have Americans, Chinese, Japanese. Um, Spanish, you can do all of those conflicts. You can do uh, Russo-Japanese war with their miniatures. Um, in one thousand four hundred um, um they have a good selection of just about everybody. Everybody, excuse me, you know, British, American, uh, French, German. The, the French, uh, the French, um, there's a podcast that I had seen on the French pre-dreadnoughts, and the title was When Hotels Go to Sea. 
uh, because you look at French pre-dreadnoughts and you kind of go, what were they thinking? Um, because they they look like a block a block of hotel a block of uh, hotels in any major city that they just you know put a couple uh, smokestacks on and away they went. Um, but if you're also looking at it from like a like a scale, if you wanted to try something very unique, uh, there's a lot of South American pre dreadnoughts, and there was a number of naval conflicts between Chile, Argentina, Brazil. Um, that are once again are very interesting because this is when everyone is still trying to try this all out. Um, so yeah, those those three are my go-to sources um, for the miniatures for this period. Okay, and then what what rules are we looking at then? Uh, there's uh, there's two sets of rules that are called fire when ready. Uh, one is based on um, the Jane's fighting ship, uh, the Jane's uh, war game system. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other one is from uh, 1982, um, and I know a lot of people that use that. The um, There's also, let me just going through my list here. Uh, Sea Creek is another another uh, really good one that I had played a lot of with Sea Creek Four, but back in the '80s, this was still at a time where having chart upon chart upon chart was acceptable. Yeah, um, it's okay. gotten a little better. Um, I'll tell you, I I'm a big fan of the War Games Vault, and I can honestly say. Um, a lot of my rules will come from there as I'm trying to find a, a good set of rules to go and work with. Mm-hmm. Okay. All Did right. that answer what you were? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> so we, we're going to move forward a little bit into time and sure. the era of the dreadnoughts, World War One. Um, you've got everybody bashing on everybody just about to one degree or another. Uh, and why don't you why don't we why don't we take that as a starting point and go from there? Sure. Uh, World War One has so much because you've got the chasing down the raiders like the Emden, um, going after the Scharnhorst and the Eisenau in nineteen fourteen, not the nineteen forties version. Um, and you can have small, small fleet actions. Uh, the actions off of uh, Chile when they were hunting down the cruisers, you're probably looking 10 ships tops. If you want to, you could do the Battle of Jutland. Mm-hmm. And many people have done it, and many people have wanted to do it. Jutland is, is to naval gamers what Waterloo is to Napoleonic players. Um, and you can do everything in between. The great part about it is, once again, these ships are so incredibly reusable. If you're looking at 1914 and you're trying to hunt down the Gobin, the German battlecruiser, and the cruiser that was with it in the Mediterranean with the British and French Mediterranean fleets, you can, and there's 
many rule systems that allow a campaign where you're trying to hunt it, and when you find it, you can then move it to the tabletop and do miniatures. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing is, the cruisers that are hunting the Gobin there are the same cruisers that are going to be f- hunting uh, Admiral Grafspey in the South Atlantic at the Falklands, and these are going to be the same cruisers that are going to be used in the North Sea and the engagements from 1914, you know, up to Jutland. Um, so once again, this is one where you may see a ship and kind of go, ooh, I like that. Um, I have normally have always had uh, a miniature of the Iron Duke. Why? I think it's a cool-looking miniature. Have mm-hmm. I, you know, you know, was it engaged in that many battles? The Dreadnoughts, not so much. Um, and here's the reason. Um, they're expensive. Yeah. They're really expensive. And no admiral wants to go into a battle unless they know they're going to win. So when you're looking at most of the battles of World War One, we're looking cruiser versus cruisers, um, maybe some old older dreadnoughts versus like Russian pre-dreadnoughts and dreadnoughts in the Baltic. But the big guns very rarely want to ever go to sea um, because there is that fear of losing them. And Mm -hmm. it's not just losing them to another dreadnought. There's these two weapons that are very, very pesky. One is the sea mine and the other is a torpedo. And as, uh, as someone who was a torpedo man's mate in the Navy, um, we don't fight there. We don't tell you we're there. Um, you, and and there were three British cruisers that were sunk in the North uh, North Sea uh, in an afternoon. And they, the first one didn't know what happened. The second one thought it was a mine. By the time the, the, the second one was sinking, the third one went, there's something wrong here. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the thing is, you can build submarines and um, lay mines with a fishing vessel. You don't need something very expensive. So these ships don't come out very often. But what that means is we can now go and um, uh, play the battles with the pre-dreadnoughts, the ones that really no one, no one in the Admiralty was terribly concerned about. When you look at the ships that were lost when the British and French tried to force their way um, through the Dardanelles, through uh, past Gallipoli, um, these, with one or two minor exceptions, were very old ships. Uh, it's like, well, you know, it's that it's okay. We don't, you know, we want the good ships watching the Germans. You know, these these are only the Turks. We don't have to worry. It, no, this will be enough. Um, and when you're losing two, three battleships in an afternoon, it's not a good sign. No. Um, and the ships were replaceable. Unfortunately, uh, the crews weren't. And and that is, is always a sad part that you have to remember that, um, you know, from any wargaming situation, I'm not being flippant about, you know, their loss. Um but yeah, there's just so so much that is uh, that you can do with World War One, and you haven't quite 
introduced aircraft. Torpedoes are a nuisance, but they're not a game changer yet. Mm -hmm. Aircraft, well, they could find you, but, you know, what are they going to do? You know, you know, drop a 50-pound bomb on the ship? No, it, it, airplanes, they're, 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 you know, they're, they're not nearly important, as important as, as, as the flyers think that they are. Um, so you can have, you know, stand-up, you know, gun battles. Um, and the great part about it, it's the same ships. So if you're doing the Scarborough raid in December of 1914 or any of the other raids that the Germans would launch hoping to pull a part of the British fleet to sea so they could sink it in detail, well, leaving the main battle lines out of it, it's always the same battle cruisers that, and cruisers that are going up against each other. Mm. So, you know, you can, you know, have some very interesting and challenging games. Um, and sometimes your, your most interesting one is going to be one where you're able to complete your mission and it may sound boring, but you didn't have to fire a shot. Yeah. So, I mean, in a nutshell, that's that's the World War One era. Okay. Uh, the miniatures. Now you're starting to get into mainstream uh, miniatures companies. Um, H and R does a lot of one twenty four hundred. Um, GHQ does some. You know, you're 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 now able to find most of these very easily. Um, the rules, uh, general quarters, uh, comes to mind. Um, the uh, Great War at Sea series um, by Avalanche Press. That's a board game system, uh, map based, uh, but most of the ships are on large counters, uh, very nice counters. And um, they do have a tactical system, so we've used that for operational rules. Um, and if I am missing a ship, I can grab one out of there because that will fit in that one twenty four hundred, one three thousand scale, um, you know, range. And if you want to fight Jutland, um, uh, seek help, um, and then go. <laughs> yes. Uh Figurehead does one six thousand scale ships. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They are small. Yes, they are. Uh but if you're doing Jutland, you should have your destroyers done as a flotilla on a stand, and the battleships and battle cruisers are their own. And believe it or not, still at one six thousand scale, you can tell uh the ships apart. Um, you know, basing is required, mm -hmm. um, but, you know, you can definitely do that. Um, some of the other rules for this, Seakrieg uh, is another system. Um, uh, I'm drawing a blank. I mean, General Quarters is one of the systems that everyone, uh, GQ is one of those that everyone seems to like. Mm-hmm. Going over my list. Oh, Navor, Viking. Ooh, one I forgot for, and and this is true for World War One as well, but for pre-Dreadnoughts, um, Tumbling Dice out of the UK okay. does 12400 pre-Dreadnoughts 
and World War One ships, and they're very nice models, and I have no problems uh, ordering from them or any of the other um, miniature companies in England because normally pre uh, uh, COVID. Uh, I could order on a Sunday and have it by Thursday, mm -hmm. um, you know, so, you know, and, and you're going to find, you know, as you get more into naval wargaming, that a lot of the heavy hitters for um, miniatures are going to be in the UK. Uh, it's yeah. more centered towards that. So we've now, uh, we've now gone through dreadnoughts, ready to go to battle wagons. Yeah, I guess we got to uh, talk about World War II, and that's really the experience I have with naval wargaming is centered on World War II. My, like I said, my brother is a huge World War II naval fan. He's got a sizable collection of uh, 1/2400th uh, ships from GHQ, and a few from Panzerschiffen, and even a few from uh, PFC CNC, mm -hmm. and. Um, he started off playing general quarters. Okay. Uh, and then he and a friend of ours, uh, actually a member of the, the J three crew, uh, Chris Copeland. Yes. We've got multiple Chris's in the group and it, it's interesting. Yes. But, I have uh, listened to the podcast before. <laughs> <laughs> it, it gets real interesting real quick when you have four or five people named Chris at the same event. But anyway, um, they actually developed their own naval rules and oh. haven't done anything with them, but they really like them. They're a little, they're a little charty, but not terribly so. Okay. So um, one thing that's definitely interesting about World War II naval is, of course, the rise of aircraft. You know, the, 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 the rise of the aircraft carrier, the refinement of submarine technology and submarine techniques – and then, of course, counter to that, you've got the rise of sonar and other detection methods, radar as well for surface detection. And there's 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 certainly plenty there that you can play with to the point where, you know, a, a, a naval game set in 1945 is potentially very, very different than one set in 1939. Yes. Uh, yeah. To the point where a, a 1939 game is almost like a world war one game and a 1945 game is almost a cold war game not i won't won't argue that point at all uh when you have this time the warship the graf spey and the south atlantic near the falklands but you know roughly in that same general area uh when she's being hunted it's by you know she has a Narado spotting plane, but she's being hunted down by cruisers that are following, uh, unfortunately, the trail of sinking merchants um, and, you know, kind of doing the best guess, which is exactly what the admirals in the South Atlantic in 1914 were doing. Mm -hmm. um, in 1940, you have the battles in and around Norway between the German and the British fleet. The British lose an aircraft carrier because it was escorted by, I believe, two destroyers 
and it was found by a German battlecruiser. Can you imagine that happening in 44 or 45? No. I mean, the Japanese didn't even lose ships that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. There was a huge, you know, huge difference. Um, for, for those that are interested in quasi-fantasy, I'll push the date back to the Great Pacific War of 1931, which I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Bywater, but this is a uh, war in the Pacific that hap- that was fictionalized uh, in the th- 30s. And the amazing part about it was how much they got right mm-hmm. uh, in the war between the U.S. and and uh, Japan. So if we're going to look at battle wagons, let's uh, let's break it down into two theaters then if we could, or sure. three if we want to do uh, the med. Um, the Pacific is interesting because at the beginning, you do have, up until the Guadalcanal campaign, you do have some very interesting ship-on-ship engagements, small, small engagements. Um, I will say the Allies do not do real well. Hmm. Um, but they're interesting and they are historically accurate and based on your victory conditions um, some of these can be close fought you know battles Um, there was a number of engagements that would happen between destroyers and cruisers uh, because at that point we had lost almost all of our battleships the British lost their two battleships and uh, the Japanese, they weren't going to put battleships in any position where they could be sunk by, you know, a pesky destroyer. Um, so you do have cruiser-on-destroyer engagements. And that lasts until we get to Coral Sea, where you can, and I have fought the Battle of Coral Sea uh, using different rule systems, because you're looking at five carriers, a handful of cruisers, a few destroyers, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, midway, you're getting bigger. The Japanese fleet is truly impressive. Uh, but once they lose their four main carriers, um, you really don't want... The Americans are not going to get involved in a gun battle between our cruisers and the Yamato, uh, the battleship. Um, so the Japanese do leave. Uh, as a naval game... I'm not as interested in Midway as I am the Aleutians at the same time, where you do have a game of uh, hide-and-seek, not on purpose, but the Japanese are trying to invade uh, the Aleutians, and we're trying to find them, but we can't because of the fog. Um, So that's that's one that's very scenario-driven, and there are a number of smaller engagements up and around there. You get into the larger carrier battles, uh, you know, post Midway, when you get into Eastern Solomon, Santa Cruz, you know, those battles in and around Guadalcanal. And those are some of the most interesting because those are really close, a couple carriers on a side. The Americans are starting to learn uh, how to fight um, carrier operations. Uh, the Japanese still have veteran pilots, but not as many as they used to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that lasts up until the Philippine season late takeoff. Um, 
the battles in and around uh, the Philippines, there's a number of, you know, battleship and cruiser engagements, uh, the Surigao Straits being the most famous. Um, but, you know, just like we both know of war gamers that, uh, when in doubt, charge, um, this is a naval tactic of high diddle diddle, let's head up the middle. Um, <laughs> and the Japanese got clobbered by battleships that um, were scrap, you know, potentially scrap metal um, three years previous uh, when they were, you know, damaged at, uh, or, or badly damaged at uh, Pearl Harbor. So when you get into 44, 45, it's not as much fun. Um, now we're getting more into the aviation end of it, and I won't uh, won't steal any of the uh, thunder from uh, the brown shoes that uh, are on carriers. So moving from Pacific to the European theater, now does your brother, does he have a, an interest of one over the other, or? He, his interest mainly lies in the Pacific Theater of Operations, but he does have... He's got at least some ships from just about every belligerent. So he's got Dutch. He's Well, the Dutch would have been on both in, both sides also. French, British, German, Italian, um, Japanese, and American. So, yeah, he's, he does... It's, it's mind-numbing <laughs> the amount of ships he has. I, I think, if I recall correctly... He was a few years ago, well, more than a few years ago now, but he was pretty pleased with himself because he had collected every ship he would need to have every ship for Surigao Strait. Oh, my. <laughs> so that's, that's a lot of models, that's for sure. I don't think he has all of them painted. But he does have. I think he does have every every model for that. Is he a member in good standing at a church or a synagogue that has a large hall? <laughs> I'm trying. How would you do? How would you do that battle? Well, uh, we could probably figure out a way to to get the gymnasium at the high school where my wife works if we <laughs> if we wanted to. You, you do that. I'm there. Um, <laughs> you know. It, it, I start out by saying about, you know, skirmish level of what naval games are like. And, okay, you know, Surigao Straits probably is, is breaking the the, uh, <laughs> uh, the the skirmish level. Yeah. But six or seven cruisers, and a lot of times they're the same cruiser or the same class of cruisers. Mm-hmm. You can fight almost every battle um, in and around Guadalcanal. Oh, you sure. only need a couple battleships, um, and you know we—you you can never have just one battleship. Um, so yeah, I mean, yes, you can. I do like the concept of doing that in, on a gymnasium. Okay, let's move back to Europe. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, um, Europe. The European theater falls under two categories for naval gaming. You have submarine operations, and you mm-hmm. have surf ships. Submarine operations can be fun. Um, the, the 
the first part is you don't even need a submarine miniature. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yes. And, and you know, of course, I'm going to have one there. Um, but once again, you're looking at convoy operations. Um, now, those same convoy operations, and, and it, it's maybe outside of the scope for this discussion to be looking at the submarine operations. But if if you want to do convoys, well, the escorts that are going to be there are going to be the same escorts you're going to use in the Arctic. Mm-hmm. And so you can have, you know, the Bo- Battle of North uh, North Cape. You can have the breakout of the Terpiz. Um You can even, you know, have all of the different engagements with the German Navy. Um, you know, uh, Bismarck, uh, Prince Eugen, and the Schronhorst and the Neisenau when they would break out and, and conduct operations. Um, the thing is, you could build the entire German Navy ship for ship, um, and it would not be terribly expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, yes, you do have companies such as GHQ, which make beautiful miniatures, um, not necessarily, you know, you know, you know, GHQ miniatures are extremely nice and sometimes are a little nicer than I would want on the table. Um, hmm. mostly because I can normally afford, you know, two or three ships for the, the price of one of those. Um, but, but there's the thing you could build the entire German Navy, um, could you build the British Navy? Uh, not in one twenty four hundred scale. Um, yeah. You know, it's just too big. Um, so you you pick the ships you like. You can do the engagements from that. Uh, the raiders in the North Atlantic are interesting. Um, I am play testing a set of rules that I think the. The most recent working title was the Battle of the Denmark Straits for $35. It's a set of rules that's on two sheets of paper, double-sided, and the idea is you can buy everything for $35, and we explain how to do it. And these are the battles of the Grass Bay, um, the breakout of Bismarck, you know, those type of engagements. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, they're the battles that we hear, of, you know, those of us that grew up with television shows like the great war, uh, great war at sea, a uh, victory at sea. Um, we go, Oh yeah, we remember these ships. Um, the fun part of the European theater is actually a little farther South in the med where you've got the Italians and the British. Um, and what makes this interesting is neither one were planning on going to war with the other, um, it's the fleet that they could afford to have in that general location, um, because the Battle of the Atlantic was so important, uh, the squadrons in Alexandria and Gibraltar were not nearly as impressive as the fleet at Scapa Flow, uh, or in the Western Approaches. So, with that said, you were using ships with better electronics, the radar, the better sonar, um, and less of them against the Italians. Um, 
I had read recently a, a piece that was done on the Italian electronics and the fact that they entered World War II not only without really much electronics, but they went out of their way to say no to it. Hmm. Um, they shut down their radar testing facilities because they didn't see a reason of what this could do for them. Um, so, yes, you have situations where the British are going to have victories very similar to the Japanese uh, early in World War II because the British are hitting ships and the Italians have no idea you know, where it's coming from until it's happening. Right. Um, so, but then you also have all of those little engagements in the Mediterranean involving torpedo boats. Um, the Italians had some wonderful designs for those. The British, between their torpedo boats and their uh, motor gun boats, very similar to uh, the fights that happened in the Pacific as well. So, really, in World War II, um, you can buy, you know, in one 300 scale, um, an escort and a transport and a handful of torpedo boats and have a wonderful engagement. Uh, or in one 2400 scale, you could buy a couple carriers and a few cruisers and destroyers and fight um, the Battle of Coral Sea uh, sure. and everything in between. Um, and this is where World War II is where the scale gets insane. You can fight World War II in one 600 and one 700 scale using plastic kits and, and, and white metal miniatures all the way down to one 6,000 scale if you wanted to do uh, the Battle of Leyte Gulf or Surigao Strait. Mm -hmm. uh, and the vendors is a, is a who's who. So, I mean, you've got GHQ, you've got Panzer Sheaf, um, Shapeways, uh, Viking, Nav War, um, just, you know, so much that's out there. Um, and for, uh, for the rules, you know, GQ is really, you know, the fallback. But we're now seeing, you know, you know, Warlord bringing out their uh, patrol boats. And I am just blown away with the quality of the miniatures. Mm -hmm. um, and just like I've always treated Games Workshop and Flames of War as the gateway, you know, you get them interested there. We'll get them into historicals eventually. Um, you know, Warlord with uh, with Cruel Seas and Black Seas, we're um, we're starting to see people kind of going, "Oh, this is kind of fun." And yeah. then you start to explain that, well, yes, this you know this S boat you know does all of this, and oh, you know, did you realize that you could write up a, a really nifty little campaign? of German S-boats operating during the Normandy invasion. Um, we thought about it, and then we kind of went, that's just cruel. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, you do have those small actions. So whether we're talking right. the Allies crossing into Normandy or the Germans using Sea Lion, and you've got small boats operating in the channel, um, you can do that. Um and so, yeah, I'm really, really pleased that uh, Warlord has brought out some really interesting-looking games. Mm -hmm. Now, typically, 
we talk about miniature games on this podcast, but I am going to highlight a couple of board games that have come out in the last couple of years. Um, all three are available from GMT games, and they are all solitaire games, which is going to be appropriate for you know the here and the now. <laughs> um, they are submarine-based games. Yes. Um, two are based in the Atlantic, in which uh-huh. you play a German submarine captain uh, called the Hunters, and then that is 39 to about 42. And then the Hunted, which is 43 to 45. And you take your take your chances and go after targets. And again, it is solitaire, and you, you try to survive as long as you can. On the other side of the globe, you've got Silent Victory, which is puts you in the role of an American sub-captain in, in the Pacific from 41 to 45. So I just wanted to highlight those briefly. Um, you may have to go to somewhere else besides GMT because last I knew they have they have closed down their their mail order operation. So you might have to get that off the off the retail market or the secondary market. Yeah, I mean the World War II in the Pacific uh, is a very interesting looking game. Um, I have played the Hunters and I like it. Um, you know, and to be honest, there is that that slide between tabletop games and miniatures games. Um, one of my earliest uh, World War II naval games is Submarine by Avalon Hill. Still a really good game. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, so, yes, I would definitely, would strongly advise people that if you don't have you know, a, a club interest that those by GMT are really good. Um, I know you can get uh, most of the GMT games also on Amazon um, and Amazon hasn't stopped shipping yeah. um, and COVID-19 will eventually end and uh, we will get back to these things. Yep. Um, now, have you played any of those? I have not. I'm, I'm intrigued by them, but I haven't pulled the trigger. Yeah, Hunters intrigued me when it first came out, and now, you know, it's in its third printing. So Mm -hmm. they must have done something right. Right. Um, You know, but also, um, uh, you know, submarine games, you know, yes, I have a hankering for those. Now there's there's also another it's a cooperative game that's kind of a mix between a miniatures game and an app driven game and uh, I'm trying to remember what it's called as I look at my notes um, Captain Sonar well no that's that's a no uh, <laughs> that that Captain Sonar is fun but it is not a naval yeah. game. <laughs> In the and looking at the notes here, my uh, I was thinking of U-Boat, the board game, is yes. the one I'm thinking of, and um, I'll try to find the notes, or I'll try to find the episode of the Two Fat Lardies Oddcast when they where they talk about playing it. So that might be another option for someone. I know that the the Kickstarter allowed you to chrome out your your U-Boat setup quite a bit with uh, 
with miniatures for different crew members and the we the deck weapons and that sort of thing. Yeah, and uh, if if you are a a ground combat gamer, also remember that naval assets always can you know add to uh, battles, especially if you're doing a, a port battle. Mm -hmm. We did a we did a commando raid at um, I think it was a Pickett's Lard either Pickett's Lard or is one of the HMGS conventions and someone had a 28 millimeter submarine and it's like I, I I want to use this I don't know how I would but I want to use this <laughs> so um, yeah I mean definitely look towards um, board games so whether we're and and the thing is some of the classic ones are relatively inexpensive um you know submarine still holds up um yaquinto did album games and they did one on fast attack boats for the yom kippur war and it is a lot of fun and mm -hmm. th this probably before we get to the final period is also decide what you want to do when you're playing a game if you want to be the, the commodore of a squadron and you're in charge of four or five ships you're going to give orders to the second ship in your line and it's going to either obey the orders or not um, you know you're not going to necessarily choose that its A turret is going to fire at this and its B turret is going to fire at that. If you're the captain of a ship, you are commanding the ship, you shouldn't be figuring out what type of torpedo is going to go into your torpedo tubes or whether you want um, HE or AP or whatever artillery round you want to go into the gun you're going to fight your crews are going to fire what they're told and it's going to be the best one mm -hmm. and one of the problems with naval games and, ga and many war games in general is they give you a layer of granularness that no one would ever have any knowledge of in the cic or on the bridge Right. I, uh, that's that's a long-standing complaint I have where people conflate detail with accuracy. Yes. And, and, I, and I've said on, on this show and on others actually many, many times that we, we achieve accuracy in our games by presenting situations and decisions or choices, I should say, that are appropriate for the role you are playing in the game. And yes. with your example, you know, if, if you're playing a game where you're the squadron commander for six, seven ships, you're, you're not going to care, you know, what type of torpedo is being used. That's, that's so far below your, that's so far below your decision-making that it, it doesn't even need to be included. It, you know, 
if you wanted to play a campaign game where you're making sure your people are trained in the appropriate use and decision making for you know figuring out what type of torpedo to use that's great i guess but if you're doing a one-off game that's you're you're not gonna worry about that well i i wanted to say that because it's a good segue to the nuclear navies in the early cold war um I one of the first rule sets I've ever I ever owned was Harpoon Two, the eighty mm-hmm. four edition, and you didn't need miniatures. You needed graph paper, a couple straight edges, and some pencils. Um, and it was it was a hoot. You know your battles were either you're an American uh, carrier group or a group of escorts outside of a carrier, and you're beating back missiles, which uh, I'm sure for some people would be fun. Uh, To me, it was just a math exercise. Mm -hmm. Um, Or you used it for what I normally did, which was uh, ASW operations, and where you were hunting, you know, another submarine, or trying to track on a surface ship. And the rules were pretty straightforward and not real chart-driven, you know, chart-heavy. And you could fight an entire engagement uh, in a couple hours. I, I did a, a very interesting uh, combination ASW with a small surface action group um, in off of Taiwan for a group of individuals. And we did, I think the whole thing in four hours, um, which there, there was one at one point that the game went a little long because somebody had his, uh, his rules of engagement of what he couldn't, couldn't do. And he kept going, but I've got a nuclear weapon on the submarine. I want to use it. And I went, (laughs) you're not allowed. (laughs) He went, yeah, but I can wipe out the entire fleet in one swell swoop. No. <laughs> so, um, I'll leave you to decide if you want to enter, uh, leave that in or out. Um, so, yes, in, in, now that we're getting into uh, the Cold War, uh, rules of engagement will probably be the most important part of any game. How to shoot, when to shoot, who to shoot at, um, when you're talking early Cold War, you're you could um, you're looking at some of the engagements uh, in and around Korea, but it really doesn't start to get hot unless you're looking at the Mediterranean um, or off of Vietnam. Uh, and even at that, it's more of an aviation game than a naval game. Um, yes, you could do the Gulf of Tonkin affair. Um, for those that know what that is, uh, you're rolling your eyes at this point and go, well, that's not a fair fight. Uh, and for those that are listening that don't know what the Gulf of Tonkin affair is, look it up. Um, it did get us into a lot of trouble. Um, mm. But once again, that gets back to your rules of engagement. Uh, the Mediterranean, oh boy, you've got the Yom Kippur War where you had Israeli fast attack craft operating against Syrians and Egyptians, and you were trying out 
missiles for the first time in an environment where you not only had missiles, but you also had countermeasures to go against it. Um, you know, aircraft were important, but in these engagements, once again, um, the air superiority was, you know, flexible enough that it, it was a non-issue. Mm-hmm. Um, Persian Gulf, uh, yes, there were engagements there. Um, but once again, in this case, air power is going to be so huge that you're really not going to, um, accomplish much if you don't have the air superiority. Yes, you can take Iranian patrol boats and against an American escort. Um, yes, you can hurt an American escort, but as soon as the American player can differentiate between the Boghammers and their Iranian patrol boats and all the other surface clutter from merchant traffic, uh, the Iranians will go away. Um, so why would anyone want to do early Cold War or Cold War, um, you know, gaming? Sorry, I've kind of combined your earlier and late. Um, okay. It's because... Anyone who served in the military in the 70s or 80s, you were just waiting for the balloon to go up and the Third World War to start. And that's when it gets very interesting from a naval standpoint. Um, Because Jay is my host, I will not say anything negative about the United States Army. (laughs) Um, Oh, I I assure you, I I say plenty negative about the United States Army. <laughs> the, the, first, the first Gulf War proved one thing, and that was the troops were not going to get to Europe in the 30 days that we kept telling um, our elected officials and the rest of the military, oh yeah, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get the roundout brigades over there. And that's really what World War III is for the Navy. The surface fleet has to protect the troops that are either going to be going, the heavy equipment that's going to go by sea mm-hmm. um, and any other uh, additional equipment. And the American carriers are going to be doing their best to suppress uh, Soviet airfields. So once again, if you want a math exercise, you take an American carrier battle group and you put it in the North Atlantic or North Sea and approach the Russian bases on the Kola Peninsula, and they're going to attack you with uh, bear and backfire bombers, Um, eventually something's going to get through and it's not going to be pretty. Um, Is that my idea of naval wargaming? Not really. Um, If the Russians were to unleash some of their cruisers in a surface raider uh, situation reminiscent of World War II. Could it work? Maybe. But the Russians were planning on doing that. I mean, we we do have information that, yes, they had thought about doing that. Um, So, yes, you could have a Slava-class cruiser uh, or a small battle group going up against an uh, a NATO battle group. Uh, but really it comes down to is the submarine end of the game because 
the American submarines to win World War III have to find and sink all of the Soviet uh, ballistic missile submarines that are going to be hiding in their bastions, which means the submarine has to be very you know, sneaky and guileless and go in to these bastions and hunt them down. Um, and at the same time, you have to make sure that our boomers are being protected. Mm-hmm. Um, and being a sailor of that generation, I can tell you, um, when we would look at the service, the, the situation map, and look at where we were and look at where all the proposed bad guys were at, and you realize there's not a lot of good guys in our neighborhood. Um, it gets very lonely. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is that kind of gaming fun? I think so, because we're talking about real-life situations that were planned out, but once again, you're dealing with um, plastic and lead, so you're not hurting anybody. Yeah. Um, and my two favorite Cold War naval stories comes from this era. Uh, my one club, that the one shop that I went to in Norfolk, the campaign headquarters, um, Norfolk is a big merchant port as well. And you'd watch going to the emergent piers, you'd watch all of the ships with uh, Eastern European flag registration go right past the destroyer and submarine piers on their way to the merchant piers. And they had some really neat uh, cameras on their uh, their bridge. And you could see, I could see them, you know, from my boat when we were watching them come up. Well, they would, they would hit the beach like we would, and they wandered into the club, the one, the, um, hobby shop the one day and we were playing uh, a world war ii game and a couple of them looked and they could realize that we were using russian tanks and they were smiling well the next time we we were playing we were playing uh nuclear war uh, and you knew we were all servicemen because of our uh really trendy looking haircuts um and they just looked at us as Americans are playing a game of nuclear war. And we're going, yeah, it's a fun game. Um, so, um, okay. Card game from flying yes, the card game. <laughs> um, thank you for laughing, because I was afraid that we had lost the connection. <laughs> yeah, I, I've got that game myself, and it's, it's, it's so much fun. It's pretty devilish, but it is, it's devilish yes. fun, I would say. Yes, there, there's always that one person in the family that you know you're just going to get first. Um, <laughs> and, and the thing is, we can take the Cold War into the current situation. Um, my rule of thumb is I don't do any current gaming. So mm-hmm. while I will do Northwest Frontier in the 20s, I will not do Afghanistan. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't do Iraq. Um do I have any interest in doing the South China Sea? No. Um, if you want to do it, great. Um, but also keep in mind that when you're picking a period, especially during the Cold War, use the reference material that existed at the time. Mm-hmm. You can pick up a Jane's fighting ships for 
any year in the 1980s for probably $20, $30. And that's every ship in every Navy in that year. And you're looking at the same data, with, which will only be slightly more cleaned up than most officers would be looking at when you're looking at, you know, situational awareness. And there's, there's more information that they, they have guaranteed. This is where it starts. So in the 80s, everyone said the same thing about, oh, the Russians are, are this and the Russians are that. And they're, they're these great, you know, they have these great ships. Well, when the wall came down and we kind of realized that, well, maybe their equipment wasn't as well maintained as ours. And yeah, maybe we are better than we were. Well, the thing was, if you're fighting the Cold War in 1985, you want to use the information they had in 1985. And in 1985, the bear was very scary. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing to keep in mind is, you know, old equipment still works. Uh, in the Falkland War, uh, a cruiser, it was World War II cruiser, but the Argentinian cruiser Belgrano was sunk by a World War II torpedo. Um, so there's there's a lot that can be done with this. And I, I, I do apologize. The Falklands is an entirely different area where you can buy every ship um, in one 6,000 scale. Uh, it is doable and to paint it up. And you can run some really fun games, and I've done mm -hmm. that one too. Um, so yeah, just don't you know find a period you like, pick up a couple books, um, and reach out. Facebook is great. There's a wargaming community on Facebook. There's 5,200 people that are on there. Um, you know, so yeah, you can always find someone that wants to be uh, taking part in this. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and once again, uh, the rules, usual suspects, uh, Harpoon, I prefer the earlier editions. Um, uh, but, you know, if you want real great detail, more simulation than game, uh, the more current Harpoon is great. Shipwreck is good. Um, Warship Commander, an, an oldie but a goodie. Um, there, there's a lot of really neat and interesting systems that are out there. Yeah. Um, I will note um, that Harpoon, the, well, how, how best to put this? My understanding is a significant amount of the actions described in Red Storm Rising yep. came from a series of games of Harpoon. Yes. Um, I think, I don't know if Frank Chadwick was playing in those games or with Tom Clancy or maybe Tom had heard about him, but... Uh, that's my understanding anyway, and Red Storm Rising is, is pretty much the Cold War Gone Hot novel. It's, it, it is, it's incredible. Um, you know, and all of those ships are available um, for anyone who wants to, you know, recreate some of those battles. Um, and 80% of the current Russian Navy it's still those same ships. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so for, for good or for bad, I mean, if you want the, to use the uh, guided missile cruiser with so many missiles, the Slava, uh, she's still the, she's the flagship now. Uh, so, I mean, they, 
these ships uh, still exist. Uh, I've heard that, uh, and yeah, I can't guarantee it was that Frank Chadwick was there, but I mean, I it's I I remember it that way. Um, and the uh, Harpoon and Harpoon Two, which came out in '84. I mean, I I knew of officers that they were they were in the wardroom, you know, because this was information that was was kind of new and interesting, um, and we could spend just a couple minutes talking about the future, uh, if you'd like. Sure. Um, during our uh, game in Gettysburg, we had you know I had met with members with a, the editor of proceedings, one of the editors of proceedings, mm-hmm. the U S Naval Institute's magazine and the Navy today is becoming more and more interested in war gaming, war gaming, the situations from a Naval standpoint. Uh, we're seeing more articles and proceedings. If anyone that is listening to this podcast has an interest in naval history, you get yourself, if you don't, a subscription to proceedings. Even if you don't care about current events, you now, with the proceedings membership, you now have access going all the way back to, I believe it's 1877 um, for uh, the uh, proceedings, which means if you want to read about the 1896 war plans that they discussed two years before the war with Spain, you can find the articles on that. Mm -hmm. You can find the articles written by Americans that were on the different ships on the Russian and Japanese Navy and the Russo-Japanese War uh, that did the reports and sent them back in. Um, You know, there's just so much great information uh, that's available uh, there. So we are starting to see more and more interest in this um, on both sides of the Atlantic because I know uh, from war game designers over in England that uh, they're also you know, being asked to talk because there is you know, the what if analysis, uh, involved. And it's also interesting that there have been war games that have happened in the last three to four years where ships that we didn't necessarily think were as robust as they needed to be were found to be wanting. And that then were forced, uh, changes in the design and, uh, also, uh, follow-on classes were made, you know, significantly better. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, naval wargaming is great because you might play once a week, once every other week, once a month. Um, but just, you know, the great books that are involved in in learning about some of these engagements uh, or learning about the men that were involved um, is, you know, to me is is half the fun of the hobby. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, I've said plenty of times that there's, you know, the 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 greater hobby has so many aspects, and you know, obviously the the research aspect is one of your favorite parts, and that's you know, that's great. I I am more of a player than a researcher, and that's that's mm-hmm. okay too. So, 
Well, John, I think that's a great place to, to wrap things up. I appreciate you bringing your expertise and your, and your passion to the show for this topic. Uh, we'll have to come up with something else to talk about to have you back on again before too long. Okay. Well, thank you, Jay, and thank you for the time to be on the show. And uh, love hearing about the, uh, the gaming experiences uh, with you, your brother, and uh, your little one. <laughs> Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he's yeah. If, if he's a hoot, <laughs> he is. Joey Joey's a hoot, and if you've been uh, if you've been following on Twitter, you can definitely you, you can see we've been getting into Hero Quest, which was uh, it's been it's been a long time getting him to really get into a game, but he's he's gotten into Hero Quest, and it's a it's it's been a lot of fun. So again, John, thanks thanks so Thank much. You. Uh, appreciate you having or appreciate you coming on today. Okay. And as always, folks, if the wargaming you're having isn't any fun, you make it fun. That is all. The Veteran Wargamer is copyright J. Arnold 2020. Music courtesy of freemusicarchive.org.